2: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com/slash sofa today for details. More in the show later This is the starship sofa everybody welcome hello and welcome to oral delights on a wednesday night i hope everyone is fine and dandy a fantastic show we have like i'm excited lined up today poetry we have by mr greg beady and we have some flash fiction coming by the way of ted chang main fiction tonight is by mr alistair reynolds the real story fantastic novel and narrated by a fantastic narrator Mr T Morris. We also have I have an author on the set on the sofa with me. It is none other than Alistair Reynolds so hope you'll enjoy that and we have our fantastic Amy H. Sturgis with her new article. So I hope you'll stick around. I hope that kind of tickles your fancy and enjoy the show. So yes, we kick off show thirty seventh with some poetry.
3: Making robot poets great by Greg Beatty. Weary at the bar, the cyberneticist asked, "What am I doing wrong? I wanted to make robot poets. I gave them perfect rhyme, clear memories of great works, aesthetic theory, and polished skill at intricate patterns." All they write is crap, unworthy of a Hallmark card. A long draft. Help me? The poet tapped the bar. Hit me, he said. Ah, I'll need a hammer, some magnets, a handful of dust, and a knife. The poet set to work. He cast magnets among them, pocking perfect memories with potholes till verse became a stay against loss. He hit them with the hammer. Some here, some there. All dented, all different. He scattered dust upon their sensors, dribbled it in their joints, so they all saw the world through unique imperfections and walked with personal rhythms. They remembered perfection, remembered memory even, but knew neither any longer. Their hymns rose up, "'Aching, moving, improving. "'They were good. "'The cyberneticist impressed. "'Wow,' he said. "'But what about the knife?' "'Oh.' "'He watched the poet slice his throat, "'anoint his charges, and walk among them. "'Falling, they rose up, "'recounting and replacing pain with greatness.'
2: Again, many thanks to Mr. Greg Beatty and Julie Davis. Please, Uh, Julie has just turned in a monster of a story by David Brin. Going to break it down into a three-part serial. Julie, it is fantastic. So, as I do always with my good narrators, I send them out some more work. (laughs) So, Julie, yes, expect some more in the post. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Greg Beatty's. Next, we come on to the flash fiction. A good friend of ours is Mr. Ted Chang. If you try and hunt back, we've got his interview, which I carried out with him and that fantastic story, The Merchant and the Al- Alchemist's Gate. But this one's just a little short one. So.
3: What's expected of us by Ted Chang. This is a warning. Please read carefully. By now, you've probably seen a predictor. Millions of them have been sold by the time you're reading this. For those who haven't seen one, it's a small device, like a remote for opening your car door. Its only features are a button and a big green LED. The light flashes if you press the button. Specifically, the light flashes one second before you press the button. Most people say that when they first try it, it feels like they're playing a strange game, one where the goal is to press the button after seeing the flash, and it's easy to play. But when you try to break the rules, you find that you can't. If you try to press the button without having seen a flash, the flash immediately appears, and no matter how fast you move, you never push the button until a second has elapsed. If you wait for the flash, intending to keep from pressing the button afterwards, the flash never appears. No matter what you do, the light always precedes the button press. There's no way to fool a predictor. The heart of each predictor is a circuit with a negative time delay. It sends a signal back in time. The full implications of the technology will become apparent later when negative delays of greater than a second are achieved. But that's not what this warning is about. The immediate problem is that predictors demonstrate that there's no such thing as free will. There have always been arguments showing that free will is an illusion, some based on hard physics, others based on pure logic. Most people agree that these arguments are irrefutable, But no one ever really accepts the conclusion. The experience of having free will is too powerful for an argument to overrule. What it takes is a demonstration. And that's what a predictor provides. Typically, a person plays with a predictor compulsively for several days, showing it to friends, trying various schemes to outwit the device. The person may appear to lose interest in it, but no one can forget what it means. Over the following weeks, the implications of an immutable future sink in. Some people, realizing that their choices don't matter, refuse to make any choices at all. Like a legion of Bartleby the Scriveners, they no longer engage in spontaneous action. Eventually, a third of those who play with the predictor must be hospitalized because they won't feed themselves. The end state is akinetic mutism, a kind of waking coma. They'll track motion with their eyes and change position occasionally, but nothing more. The ability to move remains, but the motivation is gone. Before people started playing with predictors, akinetic mutism was very rare a result of damage to the anterior cingulate region of the brain. Now it spreads like a cognitive plague. People used to to speculate about a thought that destroys the thinker, some unspeakable Lovecraftian horror, or a Godel sentence that crashes the human logical system. It turns out that the disabling thought is one that we've all encountered, the idea that free will doesn't exist. It just wasn't harmful, until you believed it. Doctors try arguing with the patients while they still respond to conversation. We had all been living happy, active lives before, they reason, and we hadn't had free will then either. Why should anything change? No action you took last month was any more freely chosen than when you take today, a doctor might say. You can still behave that way now? The patients invariably respond, But now I know. And some of them never say anything again. Some will argue that the fact the predictor causes this change in behavior means that we do have free will. An automaton can't become discouraged. Only a free-thinking entity can. The fact that some individuals descend into akinetic mutism while the others don't just highlights the importance of making a choice. Unfortunately, such reasoning is faulty. Every form of behavior is compatible with determinism. One dynamic system may fall into a basin of attraction and wind up at a fixed point, while another exhibits chaotic behavior indefinitely. But both are completely deterministic. I'm transmitting this warning to you from just over a year in your future. It's the first lengthy message received when circuits with negative delays in the megasecond range are used to build communication devices. Other messages will follow, addressing other issues. My message to you is this. Pretend that you have free will. It's essential that you behave as if your decisions matter— even though you know they don't. The reality isn't important. What's important is your belief. And believing the lie is the only way to avoid a waking coma. Civilization now depends on self-deception. Perhaps it always has. And yet, I know that because free will is an illusion, it's all predetermined who will descend into akinetic musism and who won't. There's nothing anyone can do about it. You can't choose the effect the predictor has on you. Some of you will succumb and some of you won't, and my sending this warning won't alter those proportions. So why did I do it? Because I had no choice.
2: Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Ted Chang. Ted, thank you very much for letting us narrate that story. Again, Julie, <laughs> you're in bed with the sofa north tonight, madam. Thank you very much for helping out with that. Do pop over to Julie's site and check out everything there. Links are on the main site, and I'm not too sure yet, as of yet, if Ted Chang has a website. I will certainly have a look. If not, he tells me to direct everyone to his Wikipedia page. (laughs) It will come soon, I promise. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from. download and be played back anywhere just like starship sofa so log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today again go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook and this week's special guest editor is none other than mr robert j sawyer and actually, he, he picks out his top favourite ones. And I've had a kind of little look there. Number one, he has got Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. He's recommending that. Farmer in the Sky by Robert Heinlein. The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. The Man in the High Castle, Mr. Philip K. Dick. He's got that. Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. That's 17 hours long. What a cracking one that would be. And The Time Traveller's Wife. By Audrey Nefergy. Have I got that right? Now <laughs> another 17 hours long. So, so I hope you'll pop over to com slash sofa. So, we have coming up now our fact article by Miss Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, this is fantastic. As soon as Amy mentioned she was going to do this kind of one for this week... I was like, yes, that's what I want to listen to. So, Amy, thank you so much for this. I hope you enjoyed, everyone.
4: Today, for my look back in genre history, I would like to focus on a character type, the investigator in science fiction. This was on my mind because of the debut of the new X-Files film, the X-Files I want to believe. Now, I will admit from the word go that I've been a fan of the X-Files since it debuted in 1993. I followed all nine seasons of the show, watched the first film in 1998, and now of course in 2008 the X-Files is back. Now the fact is although agents Mulder and Scully of the X-Files are fascinating unique characters, they are not the first of their kind. In fact, they represent a long tradition in science fiction. What I'd like to do is give you a whirlwind tour of some of the ancestors of Agent Mulder and Scully. In today's segment I don't have enough time to talk about all of them, for there are many, so I'll limit myself to ten, but hopefully these ten will hit the high points and will give you a sense of the development of the investigator in science fiction. To start off, number one, we must begin with C. Auguste Dupin, who was created by Edgar Allan Poe. He first appeared in the story, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, in 1841, and then later appeared in The Mystery of Marie Roget in 1842 and The Purloined Letter in 1844. Dupin is the first literary detective of any type, and so is as much the ancestor of Sherlock Holmes as he is of Mulder and Scully. But there are several things of note to consider about Dupin. First, he was called in to consult when cases seemed above and beyond the talents of regular police investigators. The cases were so baffling, in fact, that they were often considered to have supernatural elements. Dupin himself was a skeptic, and his use of scientific rationale led him to discover the culprits in each case. In this sense, he was much more like Agent Scully than Fox Mulder. He embodied that reasonableness, that ratiocination, as Edgar Allan Poe would have it, that helped Poe. Be one of the founding fathers of the science fiction genre. And indeed, Dupin has shown up over and over again in genre literature since Poe. In fact, he made a guest appearance in the first two issues of Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for example. And in George Egan Hatfury's The Murder of Edgar Allan Poe, came back to investigate the death of his own creator. The collected Dupin mysteries have recently been reissued in a Modern Library Classics edition edited by Matthew Pearl, whose novel The Poe Shadow looks at the historical inspirations for the Dupin character. Number two on my list is the enigmatic Dr. Martin Heselius, who sprang to life from the imagination of Anglo-Irish author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. The short stories and novella collected in the 1872 collection In A Glass Darkly are framed as his case notes about particular events that he investigated. We only catch glimpses of him, mostly from the introductions to these stories, although he does appear as a character in the short story Green Tea. Each of these stories has a strong supernatural element, and in fact the last of them Carmilla, is recognized as one of the earliest and best vampire stories. The mysteries surrounding Dr. Heselius, who was not only a physician but a psychic, remain as fascinating as the cases which he investigated. Third on my list is Flaxman Lowe, who was the creation of a British mother and son writing team who called themselves E. and H. Heron. Lowe first appeared In Pearson's Magazine in 1898 and 1899, and the collected stories about him were later put together in a compilation called Ghosts, Being the Experiences of Flaxman Lowe in 1899, and recently reprinted from Ash Tree Press. Lowe was a gentleman detective who wrestled with occult mysteries, and across the short stories in which he featured, managed to pit his intellect against ghosts and mummies and strange secret societies and odd, bizarre plants and even his evil nemesis, Dr. Calmercane. In one of his stories, Lowe gives a quote that is worthy of Agent Fox Mulder. He says, and I quote, Everybody who, in a rational and honest manner, investigates the phenomenon of spiritism will, sooner or later, meet in them some perplexing element which is not to be explained by any of the ordinary theories. Next came Dr. John Silence in 1908, the creation of British horror author Algernon Blackwood. Silence is described, I quote, So gentle, quiet, sympathetic, few could have guessed the strength of purpose that burned within him like a great flame. In Blackwood's stories, that purpose was to unravel the mysteries of werewolves, elemental spirits, evil fiends, and all kinds of psychic phenomena. Today the complete John Silent stories are available as a collection from Dover Horror Classics. On the heels of Dr. Silence came Thomas Carnacki from the imagination of British author William Hope Hodgson. Carnacki appeared in nine short stories, first in 1910 in The Idler magazine and The New magazine. Each of the nine Carnacki stories followed a similar formula there would be a place that seemed haunted, and Carnacki would come investigate the haunting, and put an end to it. He used a variety of methods, including state-of-the-art technology, such as photography, and fictional technology, such as his famous electric pentacle. He also referred to ancient texts and ancient rituals, which were likewise fictional. Of all of the early science fiction investigators, Carnacki probably remains the most accessible to modern audiences and the most enjoyable, which probably explains why he continues to show up over and over again. He did have a cameo in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and has also appeared in official Doctor Who fiction, as well as a number of other works. The Carnacki stories can be found online and also in several different editions from several different publishers. Next up, we have Professor George Edward Challenger by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Challenger was based on a real person, a professor of physiology named William Rutherford, who lectured at the University of Edinburgh, where Arthur Conan Doyle studied medicine. He first appeared in 1912 in The Lost World and went on to feature in 1913's The Poison Belt, 1926's The Land of Mist, 1928's When the World Screamed, and 1929's The Disintegration Machine. Challenger started out as particularly an investigator of scientific occurrences, but as Arthur Conan Doyle's interests moved towards spiritualism, the stories also took a more supernatural or paranormal turn. All of the stories are available online, and I would particularly recommend The Poison Belt, which is a fascinating end-of-the-world scenario, which, if I do say so myself, would have made a fantastic X-Files episode. Challenger has been portrayed by a number of actors over the years, including Wallace Beery, Claude Rains, John Rees Davies, Patrick Bergen, Peter McCauley, Bruce Boxleitner, and Bob Hoskins. The character is scientifically minded but open, as Fox Mulder would say, to extreme possibilities. Coming in at number seven is Jules de Grandin, a fictional detective created by American author Seabury Quinn for the genre publication Weird Tales. A French investigator living in New Jersey with his Dr. Watson-like sidekick, Dr. Trowbridge, in tow, Jules de Grandin appeared in, get this, over 90 stories between 1925 and 1951. The character was an expert on the occult and took the paranormal seriously, but many of the cases he investigated that seemed to be supernatural in origin ended up turning out to be caused by regular old human beings. Recently, the complete adventures of Jules de Grandin were combined into a three-volume collection published by the Battered Silicon Dispatch Box. Now I'm going to admit that I'm going to cheat just a little bit on my next entry, because I'm not going to focus on one character, but really almost all of the characters, by one of the authors nearest and dearest to my heart, H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote, from the 19-teens through the 1930s in the United States. Many of Lovecraft's protagonists are well-educated but alienated scholars, academics who are much more comfortable amid arcane knowledge and old lore than they are with rubbing shoulders with their colleagues and living a social life. These heroic nerds, if you will, suffer from the need to know and they put their lives and their sanity on the line to find out what's at the heart of the phenomenon they witness. Really, if you pick up almost any Lovecraft story, you will find these characters, such as Dr. Elihu Whipple from The Shunned House, Dr. Marinus Willett from The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and Dr. William Dyer of At the Mountains of Madness. Over and over again in Lovecraft's fiction, He suggests that, as Fox Mulder would say, the truth is out there. And the truths that he reveals offer themes that would be replayed and revisited continually in the X-Files, from the idea that extraterrestrials have been on the Earth for a long time, to the concept of ancient civilizations in the Antarctic, to the idea of alien abduction. And so Lovecraft, I think, is instrumental in understanding the X-Files, and his characters are clear precursors to Mulder and Scully. From here I would like to take the leap away from literature to television for my last two subjects. Number nine on my list is the first great hero of British television, Professor Bernard Quattamas, who was originally created by writer Nigel Neal for BBC television, in three science fiction serials of the 1950s. Since then, the character has had a long life, including appearances in novelizations, radio programs, and crossover universes, such as The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Doctor Who. A very clever and moral scientist, Quattimass was continually caught between the struggle to understand and to resist Sinister alien forces that threatened to destroy the entire world. Last but not least, we have the character that X-Files creator Chris Carter recognized as the direct antecedent to Mulder and Scully. That is Carl Kolchak of Kolchak the Night Stalker. He first appeared in two made-for-television U.S. movies in 1972 and 1973, and then got his own television series in 1974 and 1975. Karl Kolchak was an investigative reporter, and as he followed leads on different stories, he managed to uncover mysteries surrounding mummies and vampires, witches and werewolves, ghosts, killer androids, and yes, UFOs and aliens. In his series Millennium, which shared a universe with his series The X-Files, Chris Carter paid homage to actor Darren McGavin, who played Kolchak the Night Stalker, by casting him as the father of the lead character. There was an unsuccessful attempt in 2005 to revive the series. Ironically, one of the causes that critics cited for its failure was its similarity to the X-Files, but the original Kolchak the Night Stalker is now available on DVD. So there you have it. C. Auguste Dupin, Dr. Martin Heselius, Flaxman Lowe, Dr. John Silence, Karnacki the Ghost Hunter, Professor Challenger, Jules de Grandin, the protagonists of H.P. Lovecraft, Professor Bernard Quattamas, and Carl Kolchak. All genre ancestors to Agent Smulder and Scully. I hope that you've enjoyed this whirlwind tour of some of the classic investigators of science fiction.
2: Well actually I know you would have enjoyed that, so thank you, Amy H. Sturgis. Do pop over to Amy's site, leave comments on the forums, you know, send her emails. She loves getting emails. Send as many emails as you want seeing how good that article is, because it is fantastic. Amy, thank you very much now we come on to the main fiction of the night mr alistair reynolds and his story the real story but before that what i thought would be very nice is i get mr reynolds to actually come and sit on the sofa and tell all about the real story and what's going on in
5: science fiction writer alistair reynolds life so alistair hi everyone it's al reynolds here beaming in from sunny wales Tony's very kindly given me the opportunity to say a few things, and one of the um, things he specifically asked me to talk about was my piece, The Real Story, which is appearing in this issue of Starship Sofa as a narrated story. Well, I wrote The Real Story about eight years ago. It was uh, written in in response to an invitation to contribute stories to a themed anthology about the planet Mars. The, The book was called Mars Probes, and it was edited by Peter Crowther who'd done an earlier book called moonshots um, off I went I wrote my story it was uh, it was one it was relatively easy to write um, it the the basic idea at the at the heart of the story had been kind of on the mental back burner for a little while so I wasn't starting completely from scratch um, I had a few sort of um, False starts along the way, but eventually I was able to get into it, and, and it more or less wrote itself. Uh, the only time I, I think the only real hard work I had to do with it was working out all the stuff about terminal velocities if you're jumping off a big cliff on Mars, uh, allowing for the Martian atmosphere and uh, wind resistance and all that kind of thing. But that was that was okay. I was I kind of enjoy doing that thing, that kind of stuff uh, occasionally. So that was the real story. Um, I where did it get the title from? I Particularly liked um, a rock band that came from Sheffield in the eighties called the Comsat Angels, and uh, one of their f- one of one of my favourite songs of theirs was called the Real Story. And like a flash, I thought, oh yes, I can uh, I can call it the Real Story if I, you know, if I want. So that's where that came from. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's probably one of my favourites, and uh, I, I especially like the fact that I decided early on that I was going to use this narrator figure, Carrie Clay. Because uh, she cropped up again in a later story, Zima Blue, and I still don't think I'm completely finished with her. I'm sure there's uh, there's other sort of um, stories that she can feature in. I find her quite a, she's quite an interesting, uh, useful character to 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 use in a certain type of story. Well, that's the real story. Um, what what else has been going on? Uh, well, I finished my last book in October. That was House of Sons, and uh, apart from. The usual round of editing and stuff. Uh, that was more or less done and dusted by Christmas. Uh, I wrote another story straight after, which uh, appeared in the BSFA uh, 50th anniversary uh, anthology called Celebrations. Then I did something that turned out to be much, much harder than I was expecting. I'd been uh, invited to do another another story for a commissioned anthology, this time on the theme of godlike machines. And I thought, well, this is, you know, is going to be dead easy, because... That's the kind of thing I do: uh, big dumb objects, alien machinery, alien technology. What's not to like? So off I went, and uh, fully expected that I'd be able to polish off this uh, novella uh, on the godlike themes, God-like machines theme, in in a couple of weeks. And it, but it didn't work out like that. And uh, I was still bashing my head against it right through till sort of March, when finally it sort of came together, and I realised that the sort of the very first idea I'd written down to myself on a, on a post it note was, was better than anything I'd come up with subsequently, as is often the case. Uh, so I'd better go back and write that story in the end. And it was, um, I mean, the story that, uh, that eventuated is called Troika, um, and that will appear in Godlike Machines, edited by Jonathan Strahan from the Science Fiction Book Club in America sometime towards the end of this year, I believe, and it'll be a, a pig of a thing to get hold of, unless you're actually living in America, unfortunately, as is the case with these uh, SFPC anthologies, of which I believe this will be the last. Well, that was Godlike Machines, and I finished that, uh, as I said, uh, by, by the end of March. And that was great, because although I was late on that, I was still early, in my in my terms, I was still early on the next book. So I thought, fine, got that off the desk, now I can really crack on with uh, book nine, as, I, as I'm calling it. Um, but again, the things didn't really run to plan. Um, I had an idea for the book quite early on, which I thought was cool, and uh, that, that would have been straightforward. But then almost immediately I got another idea, which was completely contradictory to the first idea, completely incompatible. Uh, no way they could be used in the same book. And for a little while, a couple of weeks at least, I was sort of torn between which book I was going to write. Um, the, the one that I was initially uh, attracted to was um, an idea for a book called Automatic Earth, and this was going to be uh, another standalone novel. It was going to be set about a hundred, maybe one hundred fifty years from now, and it was going to be about living on Earth, dealing with the consequences of real artificial intelligence. Like, what happens if um, computers wake up and they're suddenly much, much cleverer than we are? How would we deal with it? How how would they deal with us? what kind of things would happen. But I didn't want it to be a pessimistic, uh, oh my God, the machines are taking over type of book. I actually wanted it to be quite an optimistic take on the future. Um, I was going to factor in everything, you know, global warming and all that kind of thing. But I was just going to take it as as a given that the characters have sort of learned to live with the world that they have. And they're actually quite happy with it. Um, so I had rel- re- relatively detailed notes for Automatic Earth and some idea of where I was going. And I was quite excited about it, um, but this other idea kept intruding, and I just couldn't uh, force it out of my head. So after some time, I actually decided that I, that I was going to put Automatic Earth on the back burner and work on a different book for this year. And that's basically how it's how it's been. Um, I did have a few wobbles where I thought I really, really ought to go back to Automatic Earth, because at least I do not know how to start it. But... Um, you know, at this point, I'm fully committed to a different book entirely, and I hope I'll get to Automatic Earth at some point, because I'm still interested in it. The book that I'm writing is um, completely different. It's uh, it's another standalone, but it's far more, I suppose, um, fantastic and space-operatic, I suppose you might like, although it's not got any spaceships or space travel in it. It's um, effectively a planetary romance, so it's set entirely on one planet, in in and around one planet, um, in the future, and it basically consists of, an, of a series of adventures that one of the uh, the, the main character has. He's um, He gets to see various facets of this planet, and along the, the course of his um, travels, something of the nature of this world is illuminated. I have, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, it's been a pig of a book to get into, because although I quickly, I mean pretty early on, I had, if you like, the big cool idea at the heart of it, um, which sounds conceited, but I think you know you, you never go into a book without think, thinking that you've got at least one big cool idea. I mean, otherwise there's no reason to get out of bed in the morning unless there's something pulling you to the keyboard. So I, I had that early on, um, but what I didn't really have was any idea of the right story to um, make the best use of this idea. And some, that's often the problem with writing is that you, you know, as writers say, ideas are, are, are ten a penny stories are actually harder, um, and uh, that's something I certainly struggled with. So with this one, I bashed my head against it for a few months, and uh, wrote lots and lots of fragments, which may or may not ever prove to be of any, any use in the finished book. But eventually, it did all begin to come together, and I could sort of see my way to the right story, if you like, the real story of, of book nine. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. I'm, not, uh, I'm deliberately not saying as little as I can about it. I'm not telling you the title because, A, I'm not entirely convinced about the title yet. Uh, certainly I'm certainly not going to start spilling it around until I'm confident about it. Uh, and secondly, I'm, you know, there's always a danger that you can kind of kill your own enthusiasm for projects if you talk about them too much. What I will say is that it kind of veers a little into the sort of steampunk territory. Far more so than anything I've done. I mean, I think some of the earlier books had a sort of gothic futurism sort of feel to them. But this is far more um, overtly steampunk, if you like, in that it's got some of the classic tropes or cliches, if you will, of the steampunk genre. It's got, uh, you know, fleets of airships and uh, gatling guns and steam powered cyborgs and clockwork creatures and things like that in it. But at the same time, uh, it is kind of grounded in what I hope is a sort of vaguely plausible science fictional premise. It's not uh, alternate history. It's not a parallel world. It is actually a science fiction novel set in our future. And there's an, there's an attempt at uh, some kind of rational justification for how you end up with this steampunk scenario. But there's other things going on in the book as well. It's not all just steampunk, but that's the kind of central uh, aesthetic, if you like, that runs through it and i'm enjoying it and uh, still got a lot of it a lot of work ahead of me um but at least i can begin to see uh, uh if not the light at the end of the tunnel then i, I can at least uh, believe that there is a there is an end of the tunnel so that's about it for me at the moment um well i did i've, I've done a few other things since christmas but th- those have been the main projects I, I i like to take time off occasionally to to do a little story and i've done a Done a couple more apart from the uh, Gone Light Machines novel, but the main my main activity for this year will be getting through book nine. I think when you're writing um, effectively a book a year, like I am, um, there, there's always maybe a danger to the outside world that it begins to look like something like a sausage machine. You know, you, um, I, I churn one out and then I sit at my desk and crank away at the keys, and another book sort of pops out at the end nine months later. Well, sometimes it's like that. Um, some books have gone relatively smoothly, and um, they have more or less sort of proceeded according to plan. But it does happen that things come off the rails, and you don't, you know, you, you take um, misdirections and false false turns and things like that. I mean, Writing is a creative activity, and one of the things about creative activities is you can't plan them in advance, simply because they rely to a large degree on intuition and instinct and how things that you simply can't anticipate. So, there you go. Um, not that I think anyone imagined it was ever a breeze, but um, maybe it's interesting to get an insight halfway through the writing of a book, if you like, how it's going. So that's that's my update. Um, thanks again to Tony for this chance to chat for a bit, and uh, thank you for listening. I'm out. Bye-bye.
2: Also, thank you very much for that. Yes, it was, he sent us over a, he sent us over a paragraph to say, you know, you just use that, only for intro onto me work. And I says, it was so good. I says, Alza, get it spoken and I'll play it on the show. So I didn't have to go out to, <laughs> he had to go out to Argos and get a little mic and, <laughs> and set it up. So thank you very much, sir. Much appreciated. So, we get on to the main fiction of the night, which is Alistair Reynolds' story. It is narrated by T. Morris. T. Morris is the author of Moray and Legacy of Moray, Billaboo Baddon's and the Case of the Singing Sword. His latest book is Billaboo Baddon's and the Case of the Pitcher's Pendant, available in August. Links on the site to all things Mr. T. Morris. So, without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral Delights presents...
0: The Real Story by Alistair Reynolds Read by T. Morris I cupped the bowl of coffee in my hands, wondering what I was doing back home. A single word had brought me from Earth. One I'd always expected to hear, but after seventeen years, had almost forgotten. That word was, shit. More or less, my state of mind. Roussard had promised to meet me in a coffeehouse called Sloths, halfway up Strata City. I had to fight my way to a two-seater table by the window, wondering why that table, with easily the best view, just happened to be empty. I soon found out. Sloths was directly under the jumping-off point for the divers, and one of them would often slam past the window. It was like being in a skyscraper after a stock market crash. "'Another drink, madam?' "'A furry robot waiter had crossed the intestinal tangle of ceiling pipes to arrive above my table. "'I stood up decisively. "'No, thanks. I'm leaving. "'And if a man asks for me, for Carrie Clay, you can tell him to take a piss in a sandstorm.' "'Well, now, that wouldn't actually be very nice, would it?' "'The man had appeared at the table like a ghost. "'I looked at him as he lowered himself into the other chair.' "'and then I sighed, shaking my head. "'Christ, you could have at least made an effort to look like Rosart, "'even if being on time was beyond you. "'Sorry about that. "'You know what it is with us Martians and punctuality, "'or I'm assuming you used to.' "'My hackles rose. "'What's that supposed to mean?' "'Well, you've been on Earth for a while, haven't you?' "'He snapped his fingers at the waiter, "'which had begun to work its way back across the ceiling.' "'We're like the Japanese, really. "'We never truly trust anyone who goes away and comes back. Two coffees, please.' "'I flinched as a diver zipped by. "'Make that one,' I started saying, "'but the waiter had already left. <laughs> "'See? You're committed now.' "'I gave the balding, late-middle-aged man another appraisal. "'You're not Jim Grossart. "'You're not even close.' I've seen more convincing Elvis impersonators. What? That's what they said about Elvis when he came out of hiding. That he didn't look the way they'd been expecting. I haven't got a clue who or what you're talking about. Of course you haven't. He said, hurriedly apologetic. Nor should you. It's my fault. I keep forgetting that not everyone remembers things from as far back as I do. He gestured towards my vacant chair. Now why don't you sit down so that we can talk properly? Thanks, but no thanks. And I suppose me saying shit at this point wouldn't help matters. Sorry, I said, shaking my head. You're going to have to do much better than that. It was the word, of course, but him knowing it was hardly startling. I wouldn't have come to Mars if someone hadn't contacted my agency with it. The problem was... That man didn't seem to be the one I'd been looking for. It all went back a long time. I'd made my name covering big stories around Earth. I was the only journalist in Vatican City during the Papal Reboot. But before that, I'd been a moderately respected reporter on Mars. I'd covered many stories, but the one of which I was proudest had concerned the first landing, an event that had become murkier and more myth-ridden with every passing decade. It was generally assumed that Jim Grissart and the others had died during the turmoil. But I'd shown that this wasn't necessarily the case. Nobody had ever been found, after all. The turmoil could just as easily have been an opportunity to vanish out of the public eye before the pressure of fame became too much. And it was worth remembering that the medical breakthrough which triggered the turmoil in the first place could have allowed anyone from that era to remain alive until now even though the Hydra's landing had been a century ago. I'd known even then that it was a long shot, but by deliberately omitting a single fact that I'd uncovered during my investigations, I'd left a way to be contacted. All right, he said. Let me fill you in on some background. The first spoken word on Mars was, Shit, we agree on that, but not everyone knows I'd said it because i lost my footing on the next-to-last rung of the ladder. I allowed my eyebrows to register the tiniest amount of surprise. No more than that. He continued. They edited it out of the transmission without anyone noticing. There was already a 20-minute delay on messages back to Earth, so no one noticed the extra few seconds due to the censorship software. Remember how Neil Armstrong fluffed his lines on the moon? No one was going to let that happen again. The waiter arrived with our coffees, hanging from the ceiling by its four rear limbs while the long front pair placed steaming bowls on the table. The waiter's cheap brown fur didn't quite disguise its underlying robotic skeleton. Actually, I think it was Louis who fluffed his lines. I said, Louis? Armstrong. I took a sip of my coffee, the deep butterscotch color of a true Martian sky. First man on the moon, but I'll let that pass. He waved a hand, dismissing his error. Whatever. The point is, or was, that everything said on Mars was relayed to Earth via the Hydra. But she didn't just boost the messages, she also kept a copy burned onto a memory chip, and nothing on the chip was censured. I took another cautious sip from the bowl. i have forgotten how we Martians liked our drinks beer in Viking impressing steins, and coffee in the sort of bowls Genghis Khan might have sipped kumis from after a good day's butchering. Tell me how I found the chip, and I might stay to finish this. That, I can't know for sure. Ah. I smiled. The catch. No, it's just that I don't know who Eddie might have sold the chip to. But Eddie was definitely the man I sold it to. He was a Rastafarian dealing in trinkets from early Martian history. But last time I saw Eddie was a fair few decades ago. This was, all of a sudden, beginning to look like less of a wasted trip. Eddie's just about still in business. I said, remembering the smell of ganja wafting through his mobile scavenger caravan out on the gentle slopes of Ares Valles. He never.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Sold the chip, except to me, when I was making my investigations for the Hydra piece. He pushed himself back in his seat. So... Are you prepared to accept that I'm who I say I am? I'm not sure. Yet. But you're less skeptical than a few minutes ago. Possibly, I said, all that I was going to concede there and then. Listen, the way I look isn't my fault. The Grisart you knew from your investigations was a kid, a thirty-year-old man. But you must have obtained longevity treatment at some point, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Correct, but it wasn't the instant the treatment arrived on Mars. Remember that if the treatment had been easily obtainable, there wouldn't have been any turmoil, and I was too busy vanishing to worry about it immediately. He rubbed a hand along his crown, weathered red skin fringed by a bristly white tonsure. My physiological age is about 70 even though I was born 132 years ago. I looked at him more closely now, thinking back to the images of Jim Grassart, with which I'd become familiar all those years ago. His face had been so devoid of character, so much a blank canvas, that it had always seemed pointless trying to guess how he would look when he was older. And yet none of my expectations were actually contradicted by the man sitting opposite of me. If you are Jim Grassart. My voice was low now. There's no if about it, Carrie. Then why the hell have you waited seventeen years to speak to me? He smiled. Finished with that coffee. We left Sloths and took an elevator up sixteen city levels to the place where the divers were jumping off. They started the drop from a walkway that jutted out from the city side for thirty meters tipped by a ring-shaped platform. Brightly clothed divers waited around the ring. It only had railings on the outside. And now and then one of them would step into the middle and drop. Sometimes they went down in pairs or threes. Sometimes joined together. Breathing equipment and a squirrel suit were all they ever wore. No one ever carried a parachute or a rocket harness. It looked a lot like suicide. Sometimes, that was just what it was. <laughs> That's got to be fun, Grossart said, the two of us still snug within the pressurized viewing gallery. Yes, if you're clinically insane. I immediately wanted to bite back what I'd just said, but Grossart seemed unoffended. Oh, cliff diving can't be that difficult. Not if you've got a reasonably intuitive grasp of the Navier-Stokes equation and a few basic aerodynamic principles. You can even rent two-person squirrel suits over there. Don't even think about it. It's not your thing, he said, turning, to my immense relief, away from the window. Not very Martian of you. He was right, though I didn't like admitting it. Gravity on Mars was only slightly less than two-fifths of Earth, not enough to make a difference if you were planning on falling more than a few meters, but it was enough to ensure that Martians grew up experiencing few of the bruising collisions between bone and ground that people on Earth took for granted. Martians viewed heights the way the rest of humanity viewed electricity, merely understood to be dangerous, rather than something felt in the pit of the stomach. And I'd been away too damn long. Come on, I said. Let's check out the tourist junk. My great-great-grandmother will never forgive me if I don't send her back something seriously tacky. Grissart and I went into one of the shops that lined the canyon-side wall of the viewing gallery, pushing past postcard stands flanking the door. The shops were busy, but no one gave us a second glance. Christ, look at this, Grissart said, hefting a paperweight. It was a snow-filled dome with a model of a Hydra, parked on a red plastic base. There was even a replica of Grissart, a tiny spacesuited figure not much smaller than the lander itself. Tasteful, I said, or at least it is compared to this. I held up a key ring holder, shaped like a sloth, if you were feeling generous. No, that's definitely the quality end of the merchandise. Look. Corsart picked up an amber stone and read from the label. Sloth Healing Crystal. This gem modifies and focuses the body's natural chromodynamic fields. (laughs) Ensuring mental and physical harmony. You can't prove it doesn't, can you? No, but I think Brad Treachler might have a few interesting things to say to the proprietor. I perked at the mention of the Hydra's geologist. I'd like to meet Treachler as well, and Manuel de Oliveira, while we're at it. Is it possible? Of course. I mean here, today. I know what you mean, and yes, it's possible. They're here, after all. And you don't mind speaking about them? Not at all. He put down the stone. Those guys kept me alive, Carrie. I'll never forget the debt I owe them. As I spoke, I rummaged through the rack of what purported to be recordings of sloth compositions, some of which were combined with whale sounds or Eskimo throat music. Having said that, seeing this must be depressing beyond words. Why, because I was the first man on Mars? He shook his head. I know how you think I should feel like Elvis in Graceland's souvenir shop, inspecting an exquisite plastic dashboard figurine of himself. White jumpsuits and hamburger eras, of course. I looked at him blankly. But I'm not horrified, Carrie. As a matter of fact, it actually amuses me. I examined a garment displayed prominently on a shelf. My best friend went to Strata City, Mars, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. It's set on the front. I find that pretty hard to believe, Jim then you don't really understand me. What did you think I wanted? Reverence? No. I came to Mars to begin the process of human colonization. That's why others followed me, because I made that first difficult step. Oh, and it was difficult, believe me, but I made it all the same. I nodded. Though seventeen years had passed since I'd written the piece on the landing, I remembered it all how Jim Grissart had left Earth in a privately funded expedition done the cheap way. Done, in fact, more cheaply than anyone else ever thought possible, with only a vague idea of how to get back from Mars afterward. His sponsors were going to send out supplies, and then more settlers, until there was a self-sustaining colony. Eventually, they send a bigger ship to take back anyone who wanted to return, but the expectation was that few people would plan on leaving for good. And that, more or less, was how it happened. But Grossart's crossing had been every bit as difficult as it had been expected to be. And there had been enough cries along the way to push him to the edge of sanity, and perhaps slightly beyond. It all depended, I suppose, on what you meant by sanity. Grossart continued, You know what would worry me more? A planet that took its past too seriously. "'because that would mean there was something human "'we hadn't brought with us.' "'What? "'The ineffable tendency to produce and consume "'tasteless tourist crap? "'Something like that, yes.' "'And then he held up a crude plastic mask to his face, "'and suddenly I was looking at the face of a man "'I had hoped to meet in sloths. "'The young Jim Grossart. "'I don't think you need to worry,' I said. "'Grossart returned the mask to a tray with hundreds of others,' just as the manager of the shop started eyeing us unwelcomingly. No, I don't think I do. Now, he beamed and rubbed his hands together. You know what I'm going to suggest to you? He was looking out of the shop, back toward the jump-off point. I suppose the term was blackmail. I wanted a story, or at least some idea of why Grossart had contacted me after all these years, and he wanted to take the big dive. More than that, he wanted to do the big dive with someone else. Look, I said, if it's such a big deal, can't you just do it and I'll see you at the bottom? or back here. And what if I decided to vanish again? You'd kick yourself, wouldn't you, for letting me out of your sight? Very possibly, but at least I'd have the satisfaction of knowing I hadn't been talked into doing something monumentally stupid. We were already in line for the squirrel suits. Yes, he said, but you'd also have to live with the knowledge that, when you came to write this up, as I know you will, you won't be able to include the sequence in which you took the big dive with Captain Jim Grossart. I looked at him coldly. Bastard. But he was right. Personal fear was one thing, compromising a story another. Now there's no need for that. Just tell me you know what you're doing, all right? Of course I do. Sort of. We got our squirrel suits. The first thing you did was get the breathing and comms gear attached. Each suit had only a few minutes of air, but that was all you needed. The suits themselves were lurid, skin-tight affairs, padded and marked with glowing logos and slogans. They were so named because they had folds of elastic material sewn between the arms and legs, like the skin of a flying squirrel, enough to double your surface area during a fall. Mine was only moderately stiff across the chest and belly, but Gossart's had a six-inch thick extra layer of frontal armor. We settled on our helmets, locked our visors down, and established that we could communicate. I'm really not pushing you into this, Gossart said. No, merely playing on the fact that I'm a mercenary bitch who will do just about anything for a story. Let's get this over with, shall we? We filtered through the airlock that led to the jumping off stage. Strata City reached away on either side for several hundred meters. Buildings crammed as close as the wall's topology would allow. Pressurized walkways snaked between the larger structures, while elevator tubes and staircases connected the city's levels. Not far above, perched on the canyon's lip, a series of large hotel complexes thrust their neon signs against the early dusk sky. Hilton. Holiday Inn. Best Martian. Then, Realizing as I did so that it was probably going to be a bad idea, I looked down. The city continued below us for several kilometers, before thinning out into an expanse of sheer, smooth canyon wall that dropped away even more sickeningly. The Valles Marianus was the deepest canyon on Mars, and now that its deepest parts were in shadow, all I could see at the bottom was a concentrated sprinkling of very tiny, distant-looking lights." I hope to God you know what you're doing, Jim. At the end of the platform, an attendant coupled us together, me riding Grissart. With my legs bound together and my arms anchored uncomfortably against my sides, I was little more than large deadweight on his back. Another attendant unplugged our airlines from the platform's outlets, so that we were breathing from the suits. Then we shuffled forward and waited our turn. I wondered what I was doing. I'd met a man in a bar who had given me some plausible answers about the first landing, but I didn't have a shred of evidence that I was really dealing with Jim Grossart. Perhaps when they peeled me off the bottom of the canyon, they'd find that the man was just a local nutcase who'd done his homework. Miss, he said when we had shuffled closer to the edge. What is it? Something you should probably know at this point. I'm not Jim Grossart. No, no, I'm Commander Manuel de Oliveira. And is there anyone else who you'd rather have for the big dive? I thought about what lay ahead, my stomach butterflies doing an aerobatics display by now, and decided he was probably right. The Olivera was the Hydra's pilot, the one who had brought the tiny lander down even though half her aerobrake shielding had been ripped off by a mid-flight explosion. It had not been a textbook landing, but given that the alternative consisted of becoming an interesting new smear... On the Iger Placia, the had not done too badly. You'll do nicely, Commander. Manuel, please. He spoke almost flawless American English, but with the tiniest trace of a Latin accent. Tell me, how did you get on with Jim? Oh, fine, I liked him. Apart from the fact that he kept going on about some dead person called Elvis, of course. Yes, you have to humor him in that respect. But he's not too bad, all things considered. We could have had a worse captain, I think. He glued us together. Now then, it seems to be our turn. Are you ready for this, Miss... Carrie Clay? It was strange introducing myself again, but it seemed rude not to. Yes, I'm ready. We shuffled forward and jumped, falling through the middle of the ring-shaped platform. I looked up. Though I was attached to the Oliveira, I could still move my head and saw the ring-shaped platform dwindling into the vertical distance. After only a couple of heartbeats, we flashed past the level of sloths, and then we were falling still faster. The feeling of weightlessness was not totally new to me, of course, but the sensation of mounting speed and proximity to the rushing wall of the city more than compensated. There's a trick to this, of course, Diolabera said. He had positioned us into a belly-down configuration with his arms and legs spread out. "'A lot of people haven't gotten the nerve "'to keep this close to the side of the city.' "'No shit.' "'But it's a big mistake not to,' "'the said. "'If you know the city well, "'you can keep it nice and close like this. "'The fatal error is moving too far out.' "'Really? "'Oh, yes, major mistake.' "'He paused. "'Hmm. Notice anything? "'We're not accelerating.' "'You've got your weight back.' "'Silly me. Didn't... "'Notice. "'Terminal velocity after forty-five seconds.' Already dropped four kilometers, but you wouldn't guess it, would you? Now we were dropping down a narrow vertical canyon with buildings on either side of us and rock on the third face. The started giving me a lecture on terminal velocities that might well have been fascinating at any other time. How the refineries had ramped up the air pressure on Mars to around five percent of Earth normal, which while neither thick nor warm enough to breathe, was enough to stop a human in a squirrel suit from dropping like a stone even if terminal velocity was still a hair-raising one-sixth of a kilometer per second. It was about as welcome as a lecture on human neck anatomy to someone on the guillotine. I looked down again and saw that we were beginning to reach the city's lower-level outskirts, but the canyon wall itself seemed as high as ever, the lights at the bottom just as far away. "'You know how this city came about, don't you?' Gyalaveta said. "'No, but I'm... damn sure you're going to tell me it all began with geologists not long after the turmoil he flipped us around and altered our angle of attack so that we were slightly head down they were looking for traces of ancient fossil life buried in rock layers eight vertical kilometers wasn't good enough for them so they dug out the canyon's base for two or three more then covered a whole vertical strip in scaffolding they built labs and living modules on the scaffolding to save going back up to the top all the time A chunk of building zipped past close enough to touch. It looked that close anyway. And then we were falling past rough rock face with only the very occasional structure perched on a ledge. But then someone else on Mars, they uncovered the first sloth relics. The geologists didn't want to miss the action, so they cleared out like shit on wheels, leaving all their things behind. D'Olivera steered us around a finger-like rock protrusion that would have speared us otherwise. By the time they got back, the scaffolding had been taken over by squatters. Kids, mostly. Climbers and base jumpers looking for new thrills. Then someone opened a bar, and before you know it, the place had gone mainstream. He spoke the last word with exquisite distaste. But I guess it's not so bad for the tourists. Jim didn't mind, did he? No, but he's not me. I don't mind the fact that we came here either, and I don't mind the fact that people came after us. But did it have to be so many? You can't ration a planet. I don't want to. But it used to be hard to get here months of travel and cramped surroundings. How long did it take you, Miss Clay? Five days on the Hiawatha. It was easier to talk now. What had been terror not many seconds ago, transmuting into something almost pleasant. And I wouldn't exactly call her cramped. You could argue about the decor in the promenade lounge, but beyond that, I know. I've seen those tortoise liners parked around Mars, lighting up the night sky. But if you hadn't come to Mars, we might not have discovered the sloth relics, Manuel. And it was those relics that showed us how to get from Earth to Mars in five days. You can't have it both ways. I know. No one's more fascinated by the sloths than me. It's just... Did we have to learn so much so soon? Well, you better get used to it. They're talking about building a starship, you know. A lot sooner than any of us think. The rock face had become much smoother now. It was difficult to judge speed, in fact. And the lights at the bottom of the canyon no longer seemed infinitely distant. Yes, I've heard about that. Sometimes I almost think I'd like to... What, Manuel? Hang on. Time to start slowing down, I think. There were only two orthodox ways of slowing down from a big dive, the less skilled of which involved slamming into the ground. The other, trickier way was to use the fact that the lower part of the canyon wall began to deviate slightly from true vertical. The idea was to drop until you began to scrape along the wall at a tiny grazing angle and then use friction to kill your speed. Lower down, the wall curved out to merge with the canyon floor, so if you did it properly you could come to a perfect sliding halt with no major injuries. It sounded easy, but, as Diolivera told me, it wasn't. The main problem was that people were usually too scared to stay close to the rushing side of the wall when it was sheer. You couldn't blame them for that, since it was pretty nerve-wracking as you did have to know exactly where it was safe to fall. But if they stayed too far out, they were prolonging the point at which they came into contact with the canyon wall, And by then, it would be a gentle kiss, but a high-speed collision at an appreciable angle. Still, as de Oliveira assured me, they probably had the best view while it lasted. He brought us in for a delicate meeting against the wall, head down, and then used the six-inch armor on his front as a friction brake, as if we were tobogganing down a near-vertical slope. The lower part of the wall had already been smooth, but thousands of previous cliff divers had polished it to glassy perfection. When it was over, we had come to an undignified but injury-free halt. Attendants escorted us out of the danger zone. The first thing they did was release the fasteners so that we could stand independently. My legs were like jelly. Well, the elevator said. All right, I'll admit it. That was reasonably entertaining. I might even consider doing great. There's an elevator that takes us straight back. Or on second thought, you could show me to the nearest stiff drink. I needn't have worried. D'Olivera was happy to postpone his next cliff dive, and I was assured that there was a well-stocked bar at the base of the canyon. For a moment, however, we lingered, looking back up that impossible wall of rock to where the lights of Strata City glimmered far above us. The city had seemed enormous when I had been inside it. Not much smaller when we had been falling past it, but now it looked tiny, a thin skine of human presence against a monumental vastness of the canyon side. D'Olivera put a hand on my forearm. Something up? Just thinking, that's all. Bad habit. He patted me on the back. We'll get you that drink now. An hour or so later, D'Olivera and I were sharing a compartment in a train heading away from Strata City. We could go somewhere else, I said. It's still early, after all, and my body clock still thinks it's mid-afternoon. Bored with Strata City already. Not exactly, no, but somewhere else would make a good contrast. I was finishing off a vodka and could feel my cheeks flushing. I'm going to write this meeting up, you understand. Why not? He shrugged. Jim's told you what he thought about the Mars, so I might as well have my say. Some of it you've already told me. He nodded, but I could talk all night if you let me. Listen, how about taking a train to Golembeck? It's not that far, I said after a moment's thought. But you know what's there don't you? It's not the problem for me, Miss Clay. And it isn't the reason I suggested Gollumbeck anyway. They've recently opened a sloth grotto for public viewing. Haven't had a chance to see it, to be honest, but I'd very much like to. I shrugged. Well, what are expense accounts for, if not to burn? So we'd taken an elevator back up to the top of the canyon and picked up the first train heading out to Gollumbeck. The express shot across gently undulating Martian desert spanning canyons on elegant white bridges grown from structural bone. It was dark, most of the landscape black, except for the distant lights of settlements or the vast squatting shapes of refineries. I think I understand now, I said, "Why you contacted me. The man sitting opposite me shrugged. It wasn't really me. Jim was the one. Well, maybe. But the point remains. It was time to be heard, wasn't it? Time to set the record straight. That was the problem with banishing. It let people put things into your mouths that you wouldn't necessarily have agreed with. He nodded. We've been used by every fraction you can think of, whether it's to justify evacuating Mars completely or covering it with mile-deep oceans. And it's all bullshit, all lies. But it's not as if you even agree with each other. No, but... He paused. We might not agree... But at least this is the truth, what we really think, not something invented to suit someone else's agenda. At least it's the real story. And if the real story isn't exactly neat and tidy, it's still true. He looked, of course, very much like Jim Grissart. I won't say they were precisely the same, since de Oliveira seemed to inhabit the same face differently, pulling the facial muscles into a configuration all his own. He deported himself differently as well, sitting with slightly more military bearing. Even by the time I'd done my article, more than eighty years after the landing, no one really understood quite what happened to Captain Jim Grissart. All anyone agreed on was the basics. Grissart had been normal when he left Earth as the only inhabitant of a one-man Mars expedition. Maybe it was the accident that had done it, the explosion in deep space that had damaged Hydra's aerobraking shields the explosion also caused a communication blackout which lasted several weeks and it was only when the antenna began working again that anyone could be sure that Grissart had survived at all over the next few days as he began sending messages back home the truth slowly dawned jim grissart had cracked fracturing into three personalities grissart himself was only one-third of the whole, with two new and entirely fictitious selves sharing his head. Each took on some of the skills that had previously been part of Grassart's overall expertise. D'Alavera, inheriting Grassart's piloting abilities, and Treechler, the specialist in Martian physics and geology. And, worried about inflicting more harm than necessary on a man who was almost over the edge, the mission controllers back on Earth played along with him. They must have hoped he'd regenerate as soon as the crisis was over, perhaps when the Hydra had safely landed. But it never happened. "'Do you ever think back to what it was like before?' I said, aware that I was on dangerous ground. "'Before what, exactly?' "'The crossing.' He shook his head. "'I'm not really one to dwell on the past, I'm afraid.' Gollumbeck was a glittery, gaudy sprawl of domes, towers, and connecting tubes. A pile of Christmas tree decorations strewn with tinsel. The train dived into a tunnel, then emerged into a dizzying underground mall. We got off, spent a lazy hour wandering the shopping galleries before stopping for a drink in a theme bar called Sojourners. The floor was covered in fake dust, and the hideously overpriced drinks arrived on little flat-topped six-wheeled rovers that kept breaking down. I ended up paying... Just as I paid for the train tickets, but I didn't mind. The Oliveira, or Grossart or whoever it was best to think of him as, obviously didn't have much money to throw around. He must have been nearly invisible, as far as the Martian economy was concerned. It was true what you said earlier on, wasn't it? I said, while we rode a tram toward the Sloth Grotto, about no one being more fascinated by the aliens than you were. Yes. Even if the others sometimes called me a mystical fool. The Jim... They're just dead aliens, a useful source of new technologies, but nothing more than that. Me, I think there's something deeper, that we were meant to find them, meant to come this far and then continue the search, even if that means some of us leaving Mars altogether. He smiled. Maybe I've just listened to too much of their music while doing the big dive. And what does Brad Treachler think about them? He was silent for a few moments. Brad doesn't feel the same way I do. To what extent? To the extent of wondering whether the relics are a poisoned chalice. The extent of wondering whether we should have come to Mars at all. That's an extreme viewpoint from someone who risked his life coming here. I know. And not the one I share, I hasten to add. I made an effort to lighten the mood. I'm glad. If you hadn't come to Mars, there had been no big dive, and I'd have had to find another way of having the living shits scared out of me. Yes, it does tend to do that the first time, doesn't it? And the second, it's generally worse. The third time, though, I don't think there will be a third time, Manuel. Not even for the vodka? Not even. By then, we had arrived at the grotto, a real one that had been laboriously dismantled and relocated from elsewhere on Mars. Apparently, the original site was right under one of the aqueducts and would have been flooded in a few years, as soon as they tapped the polar ice. Inside, it all felt strangely over-familiar. I kept having to remind myself that these were real sloth rooms, real sloth artifacts, and real wall frescoes. That the sloths had actually inhabited this grotto. Part of my brain, nonetheless, still insisted that this place was just a better-than-average museum mock-up or an upmarket but still slightly kitsch-themed-style restaurant. Sloths with better decor. But they'd really been here. Unlike any mock-up I'd been in, for instance, there was really no floor floor was a concept the sloths had never gotten their furry heads around, the walls merging like an inverted cave roof. Supposedly, they evolved on a densely forested planet, where gruesome predators used to live on the ground. The sloths must have come down at some point. They hadn't evolved an advanced civilization by wiping their bottoms on leaves all day. But that dislike of the ground must have remained with them. Just as we humans still like to shut out the dark, the sloths like to get off the ground and just hang around. It was all very interesting. I would have been happy to spend hours there, but not all in one go. After two hours of showing scholarly fascination in every exhibit, I had enough six-limbed furry aliens to last me a fortnight. We met up in the souvenir shop attached to the grotto. I bought a t-shirt with a tasteful sloth motif on it, very discreet, with the words Sloth Grotto Golembeck Mars in writing that had been made to look slightly like sloth script if you were not an expert in xenolinguistics. Well, I said, beginning to feel just the tiniest bit tired. That was fun. What next? The lander's not far from here, he said. We could check it out, if you like. I should have talked him out of it. It was all very well, de Oliveira and the others, talking as if they were distinct individuals. But the tiny, single-seat lander would be in screaming contradiction to that. Something was surely bound to happen, but I'd hardly be able to write up my story without dealing with the lander issue. More than that, the Oliveira seemed willing to go along with it. It was another tram ride to the outskirts of Gollumbeck. The city was the first port of call for people coming down from space, so it was teeming at all hours with red-eyed newcomers. Most of the shops, bars, and restaurants stayed open around the clock, and that also went for the major tourist attractions. Of these, the hydra was easily the oldest. There had been a time, long before I was born, when you actually had to take a tour from Galambeck to the landing site, but that wasn't the case now. The mountain had come to Mohammed, the city's outskirts surrounding the ship in a pincer movement. Enclosing a square half-kilometer of Martian surface, the lander was in the middle, a tiny, lopsided silver cone looking slightly less impressive than the one in the paperweight Jim had shown me. I looked at the other visitors and observed the way they couldn't quite hide their disappointment. I couldn't blame them. I remembered the way I first felt on seeing Hydra. Is that all there is? But I was older now, and I didn't feel the same way. Yes, it was tiny. Yes, it looked barely capable of surviving the next dust storm. But that was the point. If the lander had been more impressive, Jim Grissart's achievement would have been half the thing it was. Fancy taking a closer look? I said eventually. For old time's sake, why not? I should have realized then, of course. There was something different about his voice. We made our way from the gallery to the surface level. People were waiting to board robot buses that followed a pre-programmed track around the landing site. Exactly the way I'd done as a child. We don't need to do it like that, he said. You can rent a spacesuit and walk out there if you like all the way to the lander? No, they don't allow that. But you can still get a lot closer than with the buses. I looked out into the arena and saw that there were three people wandering around in sand-colored suits. One was taking photos of the other two standing in front of the lander, obviously trying to frame the picture so that the backdrop didn't include any parts of the city. My companion was right. The people in suits were nearer to the ship than the buses allowed, but they were still 40 or 50 meters from the lander, and they didn't seem inclined to get any closer. Most of the tourists couldn't be bothered with the hassle of renting suits, so it didn't take long to get outfitted. I think they come in two sizes, I said when we were waiting in the airlock. Too small and too large. He looked at me without a trace of humor. They'll suffice. The penny dropped. Of course, Brad. We stepped outside. It was dark overhead, but the landing site was daytime bright, almost shadowless. The lander stood 200 meters from us, surrounded by a collection of equipment modules, surface rovers, scientific instruments, and survival packages. It looked like a weather-worn Celtic obelisk, encircled by a collection of marginally less sacred stones. Well, Brad, I said, I've heard a lot about you. I know what you've heard. You do? We started walking across the rust-colored ground. I know what Grossart and de Oliveira say about me. Don't you worry. What, Then you're not convinced as they are that coming to Mars was such a good idea? It's hardly intended as criticism. Everyone's entitled to an opinion. Even three at the same time, I thought. They're right, of course. I don't think we should have come here, but if that was all they said... He paused, allowing for a glass-bodied bus to cross in front of us, surfing through the loosely packed dust on its wide balloon wheels. The tourists were crammed inside, but some of them looked more interested in their snacks than in the Hydra. What else do they say, Brad? You know, of course, so why pretend otherwise? I'm really not sure. The explosion. Damn you. The one that happened in mid crossing, the one that nearly prevented us landing at all. They say I did it, tried to sabotage the mission. Actually, they hardly mentioned it at all, if ever. Well, you're good. I'll grant you that. I know, but that's not the point. You couldn't have sabotaged the mission anyway. But I stopped because there was only one place that particular argument was headed. Because you didn't exist then, just as you don't exist now. Because back then, Jim Grissart was all there was. I said lamely, even if you had second thoughts, you wouldn't have done something like that. No, His voice was softer now, almost trusting. But perhaps I should have. I don't agree. Mars wasn't some pristine wilderness before we came, Brad. It was nothing, just a miserably cold and sterile blank canvas. We haven't ruined it, haven't spoiled anything. He stopped and looked around, taking in the tiered galleries of the city that leaned over us like a frozen wave. You call this an improvement? On nothing at all, yes. I call it an abomination. Christ, we've only been here a century. This is just our first draft at living on Mars. So what if it isn't the best we could ever do? There will be time for us to do better. He didn't answer for a few seconds. You sound like you agree with Jim Grossart. No. I could live without some of the things Jim seems to cherish, believe me. Maybe when it all comes home, I'm closer to Manuel de Oliveira. We carried on walking again, approaching the lander's encirclement. That mystical fool? He may be a mystical fool, but he can sure as hell do the big dive. I paused, wondering why I was defending one aspect of a man's personality against another. But de Oliveira felt as real to me then as anyone I'd ever met, and equally worthy of my loyalty. And he's right, too. Not coming to Mars would have been the greatest mistake humanity could have made. "'I'm not just talking about the relics, either. "'They'll open a few doors for us, "'but even if we'd come here and found nothing but dust, "'it would still have been right. "'It's the space Mars gives us that makes the difference. "'The room to make mistakes.' "'No,' he said. "'We already made the greatest mistake. "'And I could have stopped it. "'We were close to the lander now, "'no more than forty-odd meters from it, I'd have guessed.' but I noticed that the other people were no nearer. Walking side by side, we took a few more footsteps towards the center, but then our suits began to warn us against getting closer. Lights flashing around the faceplate and a softly insistent voice in the headphones. I felt my suit stiffen slightly as well. It was suddenly harder to take the next step. Then speak out about it, I said forcefully. Come out of hiding. Tell everyone what you think. I'll guarantee they'll listen. No one has your perspective. That's the problem. Too much perspective. We were close enough to the lander now that he must have been finding it hard to sustain the illusion that three men had come down in it. I feared this moment and at the same time felt a spine-tingling sense of anticipation about what would happen. I'll make sure they listen, Brad. That was why Jim contacted me, wasn't it? To have his story heard, his views on Mars known. And didn't he mean for all of you to have your say? No. He began fiddling with the latch of his helmet, because it wasn't Jim who contacted you, it was me. Jim Grissart isn't real, don't you understand? There was only ever me. He nodded at the lander, even while he struggled with his helmet. You don't think I'm stupid, do you? I tried to pull his hands away from the neck ring. What are you doing? I shouted. What I always planned to do. What it took me 17 years to summon up the courage to do. I don't understand. Words won't make a difference now. Mars needs something stronger. It needs a martyr. No! I fought with him, but he was a lot stronger than me. There was no unnecessary violence in the way he pushed me away. It was done as gently as circumstances allowed. But I ended up on my back in the dust, looking up as he removed his helmet and took a last, long inhalation of thin cold, Martian air. He took a few steps towards the lander, his skin turning blue, his eyes frosting over, and then stumbled, one arm extended, fingers grasping toward the hydra. Then his suit must have locked rigid, immobilizing him. He looked like a statue that had been there for years. It shouldn't have been possible, I kept telling myself. there's are supposed to be safeguards that stop you doing that kind of thing in anything less than a breathable atmosphere. Rigidly adhere to rules ensuring that equipment for hire is checked and rechecked for compliance. Double and triply redundant protective systems. But I guess the suits we rented just didn't quite live up to those high ideals. He died but that means even less now than it did once upon a time. They got him inside reasonably quickly. And though the exposure to the Martian atmosphere had done a lot of harm, and although there was extensive neural damage, all of these things could be repaired, given time and, more importantly, money. Who's the old man, anyway? The medics asked me, after I had arranged for my firm to pay for his medical care, no matter how long it took. That had taken some arguing, incidentally, especially after I told them there wasn't going to be a story for a while. I don't know, I said. He never did tell me his name, but he was interesting enough company. The tech smiled. We ran a gene profile, but the old coot didn't show up in the records. Doesn't mean much, of course. No, a lot of people with a criminal past vanished during the turmoil. Yeah, the medic said, already losing interest. They kept talking about him as an old man, and it wasn't until I saw his comatose body that I understood why. He did look much older than he had ever seemed in any of his three guises, as if even his semblance of middle age had been an illusion. His coma was deep, and the restorative brain surgery was performed slowly and painstakingly. I followed the process closely at first, checking up on him every week, then every month. But nothing ever happened. He never showed any signs of emerging, and all the usual techniques for kickstarting a mind back to consciousness were unsuccessful. The medics kept suggesting they'd call it a day, but so long as the funds were arriving from my firm, they didn't mind wasting their time. I checked on progress every six months. Then, perhaps, once a year. And life, of course, went on. I couldn't see any dignified way of finishing the story, not while the principal player was in a coma. So it just stalled while I covered other pieces— Some of them were moderately big, and after a while there came a point where I consigned the whole Jim Grossart story to the bottom drawer, a wild goose chase that hadn't ended up anywhere. I even stopped being sure that I'd ever met him at all. After that, it was a simple matter of forgetting all about him. I don't think I've given him a moment's thought in the last two or three years. Until today. I still visit slots now and then. It happens to be a reasonably trendy media hangout now, a place to pick up the ground tremors of rumor ahead of the pack. And there he was, in approximately the same window seat where Jim Grossart had sat ten years ago, looking out at the divers. I read his expression in the window, one of calm, critical detachment, like a judge at a major sporting event. His face was that of a younger man I recognized, but had only ever seen in photographs. I looked at him for long moments. Perhaps it was just a genetic fluke that had shaped this man who looked like the young Jim Grassart, but I doubted it. It was the way he sat. The stiff, slightly formal bearing. Except that hadn't been Jim, had it? Manuel de Alavera. I stared for a moment too long, and somehow my eye caught his, and we found ourselves staring at each other across the room. He didn't turn around from the window, but after a few seconds, he smiled and nodded. The bar was packed that night, and a crowd of drinkers surged in front of me, interrupting my line of sight. When they passed, the table was vacant. I checked with the hospital the day after. It had been at least two years since I'd been in touch, and I was informed that the old man had at last emerged into consciousness. There had been nothing unusual about him, they said. Nothing odd about his physiology. "'What happened, then?' I said. "'The funds allowed for some fairly simple rejuvenator procedures,' the medic said, "'as if restoring youth was about as technically complex and as interesting as splinting a fracture.' "'He hadn't left any means for me to contact him, though. "'It might not have been him, I know. "'It might never had been Jim Grossart I met. "'And the young man in sloths could have been anyone with the same set of blandly handsome facial genes.' But there was one other thing. The old man had emerged from his coma 18 months before the meeting in the bar, and his rejuvenation had taken place not long after, which might have meant nothing except there was something different about the night I saw him. Something which was entirely consistent with him having been Manuel de Oliveira. It was the night the starship left Mars orbit, the one they'd been building there for the last five years, the one that's going out into the galaxy to search for the sloth. The ship they named, the Captain James Grissart. I'd like to think he was on his way up to her. I checked the ship's manifest, of course, and there was no one called Grissart or de or even Treachler. But that doesn't mean it wasn't him. He'd been traveling under a new name now, one I couldn't even guess. No one would know who he was. Just a young man who had volunteered to join the starship's crew. A young man whose interest in the aliens might at times verge on the mystical. And on his way up, he hadn't been able to resist one last look at the divers. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was only ever my subconscious playing tricks with a stranger's face. Supplying the closure my journalistic instincts demanded. But the way I see it... It almost doesn't matter because all I was ever looking for was a way to finish their story. Now it can be told.
2: what a story yes Alistair Reynolds thank you very much sir it was much appreciated I will be dropping you a line to try and get some more free stories <laughs> and T Morris what a great reading that is thank you so much sir do go and pop over to the front of the website to check out both T Morris and Alistair Reynolds sites a lot's happening with them so I think that kind of wraps up Starship Sofa again for a week I hope you've enjoyed it I hope it's been all right do pop over the site, you know. Do come over to the forums and say hello. Everyone's there's so nice, and it'll just be a nice one big Sophonot community. Or if you want, by all means, drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know where you kind of listen to the show, what's going on in your life, what books you like, anything like that. Talk to us. <laughs> it's just me sitting here by myself. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget, yes, we have loads of ways I you, you can take your cash off you. <laughs> Pop over to the shop and have a look there. We've got the back shows if you want to take out kind of order of the back shows. Don't forget, you get the free audiobook by my good self the collection of short stories, jumping into possibilities. If you take out the back shows, you can go and buy the get the audio book by itself. That's by all means you know 4 dollars for that. Don't forget, have a look out. Keep popping over to the front of the website to see if the Starship Sanatorium has actually crash-landed. As soon as that kind of image is up, that means it's working and you'll be able to sign up for the private Starship Sofa Sanatorium feed. Which will just be all me, just rabbiting on about flip-flops and crisps and so anything, to be quite honest. So, I hope you'll do that. Or, you know, if you want to, please drop a donation. It keeps, honestly, it keeps this... Audio magazine going. If it wasn't for the likes of everyone kind of chipping in, it would just crash and burn, do you know? So, please, I hope you have a lovely time and I will get back next week. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me.
3: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next
4: exciting installment of. A evacuation procedure is needed. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.